the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Tickets go to Genesis. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back, no turning back. Well, everyone sing, I have decided. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided. Everyone lift your hands and sing the cross. The cross before me.
Despisest thou the riches of his goodness, and forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and also of the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for there is no respect of persons with God. Romans chapter 2. I'm very clear as I read the scriptures that the preponderance of the evidence of scripture is that a man is going to be judged based on what he does. Now, is a man saved by what he does? No. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified by Jesus. That is, we are made righteous by Jesus. So the righteous works that a Christian will perform will be those that flow out of what Jesus has done in us based on our decisions on whether we are willing to repent and do those things which we're called to do. Now, out of yesterday's broadcast, and we're going to review that in just a moment, but out of yesterday's broadcast, it became very clear that repentance has been much too cheaply dealt with in the modern church and perhaps in your life. If you're still walking in sin, if you know today that you are walking in disobedience to any command God has given you, then the wrath of God is upon you. And you need to very carefully begin to deal with the Lord God of heaven. This is Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. With me in studio is my wife, Alexandra. Together, we're going to deal with this topic today. We first take you to the story of Pilgrim 
by John Bunyan, written in the 1600s as he sat in prison, were walking in obedience to the commands of the Lord. He writes, As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I came to a certain place where there was a cave, and I lay down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. And in this dream I saw a man clothed in rags. Well, Bunyan is writing now this number one allegory in the English language. He is describing his prison cell as a cave. And he's saying that the world is a wilderness, not a sanctuary. He continues, he sees a man clothed in rags standing in a place with his face turned away from his own house. He had a book in his hand and a heavy burden upon his back. I looked and I saw him open the book and begin to read. And as he read, he wept and he trembled. Not being able to contain himself, he cried out with a loud voice, What shall I do? This is not your current experience, I would suggest. For you have believed the easy believism of the Nicolaeans and have bought into the lie that you're saved in the midst of your sin. If that's your condition today, you once more need to open the book, the Bible, and begin to earnestly search it and read until... Jesus gives to you the gift of tears and trembling before his righteousness. Now, in this condition, he went home. He tried to keep to himself as long as he could so that his wife and children could not see him in distress. But after a short time, his anguish had increased so much that he could not remain silent. So he began to share with his wife and children what was on his troubled mind. And this is what he told them. Dear wife and children, I am greatly troubled by this burden that torments me, grows, it weighs so heavy upon me. Moreover, I have received information that the city in which we live will be burned with fire from heaven. When this happens, all of us will be destroyed unless by a way I do not yet see some way of escape can be found so that we may be delivered. Hearing this, his family was greatly amazed, not because they believed what he said to them was true, but because they thought that he was losing his mind. They put him to bed. The night was as troublesome to him as the day, Instead of sleeping, he spent the night in sighs and tears. So when morning came, his family came to find out how he was doing. Worse and worse, he told them. He retired to a private room to pray, to try to find consolation for his own misery. He would often walk alone in the field, sometimes reading, sometimes praying, for a long time, this is how he spent his days. Then one day I saw the man walking in the fields, 
reading in his book and greatly distressed in his mind. As he read, he burst out as he had done before, What shall I do to be saved? I noticed that he looked this way and that way as if he would run, yet he stood still because he could not decide which way to go. Just then I looked and saw someone named Evangelist coming toward him. He came up to the man and asked, Why are you crying out? He answered, Sir, I understand from reading the book in my hand that I am condemned to die and after that to come to judgment. I'm willing to do the first. I'm not willing to do the first nor able to do the second. Evangelists ask, Why are you not willing to die since this life is attended with so many evils? Because, said the man, I'm afraid that this burden that is on my back will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into hell. And, sir, continued the man, if I am not ready to die, then I am not prepared to go to judgment, and from there to execution. Thinking about these things distresses me greatly. Well, if this is your condition, why are you standing still? because I don't know what to do or where to go. And the evangelist gave him a parchment, unrolled it so that the man could read, Flee from the wrath to come. The purpose of this broadcast is to help you, trouble you, and cause you to begin to examine your life and the word of God to recognize that repentance is not something we do over and over and over. Repentance is not about specific actions primarily. It is rather about an utter, total, complete giving over of our heart and our life to Jesus, being owned by him, being transformed by him. So, Alexandra, walk with us through some scriptures and through some review. Thank you, Ray. So, this idea of being judged by our works is critical. So, we, since the Reformation happened, we have really focused on being saved by faith. And that has opened the door to a lot of antinomianism with people getting the impression that the grace of God will just save them no matter what they do, no matter how they live. Uh, there's ideas that we won't actually be judged by what we do, but what Christ did for us will just be counted to our account. But we don't find these ideas in Scripture. So one of the first places we can look are the words of Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter sixteen twenty-seven. Jesus says, for the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. So what's being said here is we know that Jesus is going to be the judge of the whole world. He's going to judge every person who's ever lived. And this judgment is going to be based on what we've done, and we'll receive a reward, which will be either heaven or hell, based on what we've done. That's what Jesus is saying here. This idea is actually found throughout the entire Bible. And if you've studied this with any, if you've just read the Bible at all, you've probably started to notice this trend and you may be a little perturbed. You might be thinking, 
well, how can I be righteous if I've sinned? How can the Bible say that there's the righteous and the wicked? You might be saying, how can I be saved by faith, but then judged by my works? So there's another, let's look at a few more passages of scripture. So I want you to see that this is occurring in many books of the Bible, not just in a couple. So if we go to the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, which is chapter 12, the very last verse says, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. This idea is echoed in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. He continues, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. So we get this picture that in the early church and in the Bible that it was very clearly taught that we were going to be judged by what we had done and that God's judgment was terrifying and no one wants to be subject to it. Paul even said that he didn't want to be a castaway. So Paul recognized that he had to continue into the end. To ultimately be saved, which is what Jesus said. He said, he that endureth to, end, to the end, the same shall be saved. So the critical hinge for the gospel is that the, the way we transition from being wicked, from a life of evil, wicked deeds, the way we transition from that to a life of righteousness is through Christ. And that happens, as we talked about yesterday, through one repentance, where you completely give up the old life, the old man with all of his works, as the Bible says, and you give yourself totally to Jesus. And it's by that faith in Jesus and by receiving the Holy Spirit that then all of your actions are righteous. So there isn't a mixture of good and bad in the same person. So we call this conversion. Yes. It is not a process. No, it's not a process. It's a decision. It's a decision that I will give myself cold-blooded. I will give myself into the hand of Jesus Christ. I will belong to him. I am given to him. That is the crucifixion where I die to myself and I'm made a new creature. Now, often we refer in the modern church to making progress in the faith through self-help means. And so you'll find many churches doing seminars and workshops on how to overcome your impatience or how to overcome this or that. All of that is self-help it's self-help for the person who has not yet been converted who has not been changed there is a wicked man and there is a holy man there's a wicked woman and there is a holy woman the two are very different and what separates them is conversion and that conversion is through repentance which is what we really emphasized yesterday 
the passage we opened with at the beginning of the broadcast, I just want to return to it for a minute. That's Romans chapter 2. You'll see at the beginning, Paul says, he's speaking to people who point out the sin of others, who say don't commit adultery, but then they themselves commit adultery. He says, do you think that if you're telling someone else not to do this, that you'll escape the judgment of God, even though you're doing the same thing? He says no. In verse 2, he says, we are sure that the judgment of God is, acor is according to truth against them which commit such things. So it's, again, it's based on what we are committing. And then he says, do you think that you'll escape the judgment of God? Are you despising the goodness of God and refusing to repent? And he says, if you're doing that, if you're persisting in sin, refusing that repentance, you're actually treasuring wrath up against yourself. Every day that you continue in sin, you're increasing God's wrath against you. And there will come a day, as we read in Pilgrim's Progress, when God will give every man according to what he's done. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So we see very clearly that we are called to repent. And that means metanoia. It means to have a second thought. And then to act on that second thought and to turn utterly, completely from that darkness. To become dead, as Paul says in Romans, the sixth chapter, to be crucified with Christ. This is not a makeover of the old man. This is not a makeover, a self-improvement process. This is dying and a new creature being born from above. It is a supernatural work of God's grace. He is calling us into that new place via the road of repentance because repentance is the foundation of the Christian's life. So to just briefly review what we talked about yesterday, if you haven't listened to yesterday's broadcast, you can go on nationalprayerchapel.com and listen to it. It's called Early Church Repentance. So what we found as we looked at the early church is that Repentance was very public, and to join the church, a sinner would have to come and actually make a public, humiliating confession. Often they would dress in sackcloth and ashes, be on their knees, be weeping, and once you were admitted into the church, it was taught that you could not repent again. So once you repented, were born again, you became a Christian, if you were to then, say, commit adultery or deny the faith, if you were going to say, well, God's not giving me what I want, I'm going to stop being a Christian, you could not repent again. You couldn't come back a week later and say, oh, I changed my mind. 
So that's what we discovered as we really started to look at this. And so repentance was a distinct, concrete event where you gave up your entire old life worshiping idols. Homosexuality was very prevalent, we know, in that time period. Um, cursing, lying. You gave up every single sin all at once. And you were committing the rest of your life to live in obedience to God and to serve him. Now, I do want to point out, according to First John, if a man, perchance, choose to sin, he has an advocate with the Father. So we're not saying that everyone in the church should be expelled who has ever committed a sin. What we are saying is that repentance is very serious. It is not casual. It is not an allowance to continue walking in the way we choose. I listened to one national pastor as he spoke about this topic, and he casually said this morning, I had to go to the Lord, and I had to repent for something that I had done and it was a very casual matter. It was simply going in and tapping the account to forgive me. And I said to the Lord in my prayer, Oh, and by the way, I may sin again like this, so I may have to come back for more forgiveness. Well, it's this cavalier, casual attitude toward repentance that is destroying the American church and, as a result, destroying our culture. It's time to get serious about repentance and about being holy. Again, the foundation of the Christian faith is repentance and then forgiveness of sin or removal of that sin, that selfish life. And then comes holiness, not more sin. So we just want to point out that Real repentance is not gradual, and it's not working on one sin at a time. It's like we said at the beginning of the broadcast. It's where you make a transition from being someone who lives in wickedness to being someone who lives in righteousness. So if you're still in any sin, you have not actually repented. One man I know right now that I'm struggling with is living with a woman that he is not married to, he is having large amounts of alcohol consumption. He loves to get drunk at night. Uh, he does pot and cigarettes. But he said to me, I said, are you serious or are you prepared to be serious about Jesus? He said, oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. And I said to him, no, you're not saved. <coughs> Pardon me. He said, you're in danger of hellfire. If you don't repent of your sin, you cannot be saved. To be saved means to be taken out of my sin and brought into Jesus Christ. With this idea of being judged by our works, I find it really profitable to look at 
some of the early Christian writings. And one of them, it was written about the same time as the Revelation of St. John, which is also called the Apocalypse of St. John. So this work is called the Apocalypse of Peter, and it was pretty widely read about the same time. And I think of looking at this, we don't consider it to be scripture, but let's say we wanted to know what the Puritans believed. We might look at a Puritan sermon. So I find looking at this is helpful to see if I had walked into a church meeting in the first century, what might that have looked like? And what we find in this apocalypse of Peter are extremely vivid descriptions of the types of torments that people are enduring in hell. And you'll notice that they're actually based on their specific sins. So I'll just read a few portions. The whole thing is over 2,000 words long. So you could imagine walking into a church service this weekend and hearing for 45 minutes someone talking about all the specific torments of hell. This is the first part. Then shall men and women come unto the place prepared for them. By their tongues, wherewith they have blasphemed the way of righteousness, shall they be hanged up. There is spread under them unquenchable fire, that they escape it not. So if you are someone who has spoken evil of Jesus Christ and of the way of righteousness, this is saying you will be hanged up by your tongue over fire that never goes out and you won't be able to escape it. Beside them shall be clad in darkness for a garment girls who are going to be sore chastised and their flesh torn to pieces. Why are these girls having their flesh torn to pieces? It says these are they that kept not their virginity until they were given in marriage. And with these torments shall they be punished and shall feel them. As you remember yesterday, we talked about how at the resurrection of the dead, you're going to be in the same body that you're in right now. So if with your body, you gave up your virginity before you were married and you don't repent, this is one thing that could happen to you. You could be having your flesh torn into pieces while wearing clothes of darkness. And again, other men and women gnawing their tongues without ceasing and being tormented with everlasting fire. These are servants which were not obedient unto their masters. This then is their judgment forever. And hard by this place of torment shall be men and women, dumb and blind, whose clothing is white. They shall crowd one upon another and fall upon coals of unquenchable fire. These are they that give alms and say, We are righteous before God, whereas they have not sought after righteousness. You know, you read these descriptions that people have come up with to describe hell. I don't have an answer. I've not been there, and I don't want to go there. But I can tell you that over and over in the scriptures, we are warned about the torment of hell, that every man will receive his just reward. And what we see from these passages I just read is the early church did preach in great detail and quite extensively on the eternal torments of hell, which will happen in the body. They were very clear that we are going to be judged by what we've done. If you've blasphemed, if you have 
given up your virginity before marriage. Some of the ones I didn't read include aborting your children. It talks about the eyes of the children who were aborted sending out rays of fire that torment their parents who killed them. It's clear that we're not judged by what we intended to do but did not do. We're not judged by our desires that we did not act on, but we're judged by what we actually did. And what I think is useful in trying to conceptualize this to make it really basic, let's say that you stole something. You know if you stole it or not. Whether or not you get taken to court, you know that you stole it. If you are arrested and you're taken to court, you know why you're going, you know what the charges are, and you'll know what your sentence is. But let's say that you're innocent. You haven't done anything wrong. You know that you shouldn't be summoned to court in the first place. Now let's say that one of your neighbors lies about you and you end up being summoned to court and you're falsely accused. Your conscience will say, no, I'm innocent. And it doesn't matter what your neighbors say, what the jailers say, you might get thrown in prison and all the prisoners are saying, we don't believe you. We really think that you stole that thing. But you know in your conscience that you're innocent. And so it's the same way. We know in our conscience if we have committed crimes against God. And we know in our conscience if we have repented and been made innocent before God. So there won't be any question about it on the day of judgment. So we see, just like we saw in the Bible verses we read, that there's a very clear line between the righteous and the wicked. So there's no such thing as having good actions while your heart remains wicked. Jesus said that out of the heart of man proceeds every uncleanness. And likewise, you can't have a good heart and be doing evil things. You can't say, well, I'm a good person, but then you go cheat on your husband or your wife. The fact is that you are not a good person if you're doing those things and you need to actually do that one final once for all repentance and be truly converted when we go to the scriptures Matthew the third chapter John the Baptist came out of that desert land and he began to preach repent for the kingdom of heaven is near Now, he was fulfilling the Isaiah 40 passage, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. The way John saw his task to prepare the way for the Lord was to come convicting of sin, pointing out sin, calling for repentance. Now, if you look in the book of John, Jesus told us that when he sent the Holy Spirit, his first task would be to convict of sin. This is always the preparatory work for entering into the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God without repenting. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist the significance of this is that he was the last Old Testament prophet. 
people came from all over Jerusalem and Judea, the whole area of the Jordan. And the scriptures tell us in Matthew, the third chapter, verse 6, confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. The response to godly preaching should be a confession of sin. Repentance. When he saw the Pharisees coming and the Sadducees, they were the leaders of Israel. They were the Pharisee sect was the one that was the most strict in law-keeping. He said to them, You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? So John saw Jesus coming as the coming of wrath. We see Christmas coming and and we think about little baby Jesus in the manger, sweet, adorable. John thought about Jesus coming and he thought about wrath coming, about judgment. And the Lord himself said, I did not come to bring peace on the earth. I came to bring a sword to separate You want to jump in? I wanted to talk about how we are righteous, not just by not sinning, but by specific actions that we do. Yes. So as we've been talking about, we will receive a reward if we've done good or if we've done evil. So what are the, what is the good? So we know what the sin is that we should not be doing, but what is that? What are the actions of righteousness that we should be doing. So Jesus, I think, said this probably the most starkly. It's found in the end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. Jesus says, he's talking about the separation of the sheep and the goats at the final judgment. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you've done it unto me. So this passage is speaking about how we relate to other Christians, to our brothers and sisters. So this includes giving food and drink to those in need in the church, giving clothing to those in need in the church, visiting Christians who are in prison, presumably because of their faith, visiting sick Christians. And this can include people in your local church, but it can also include Christians in need in other churches. So for example, when you read through Paul's writing, you find that he was taking a a collection of money from the Gentile churches to bring to the church in Jerusalem. And a current events example would be 
the recent church shooting that took place in Texas, an organization has stepped forward and they've offered to pay for the funerals of all of the 27 people who were killed. So if you don't personally know any Christians imprisoned for their faith, you might look into an organization like Voice of the Martyrs where you can actually write letters to someone in prison. Can you imagine if you were being held in prison for 10 years because you were a Christian, how encouraged you might be if you got a letter from someone? So Jesus said that if we would do these things, we would not lose our reward. But he warned that if we don't do these things, we'll be cast into everlasting fire. We find a similar passage in Isaiah 58, but this doesn't refer exclusively to the church. So God is speaking about true and false fasting. He says, Is not, the fa- is not this the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free? and that you break every yoke? Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry, and that thou bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? When thou seest the naked, that thou cover him, and that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh? Then shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thy health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward. I love this passage because it shows first The first thing is that there is a breaking of wickedness. Sin is broken. And what that results in is giving our food, our clothing, offering up our home to people who need it. So this might look real practical to you is maybe there's a homeless person who you've been seeing, you know, week after week. You've talked to them a little bit. Well, have you ever invited them to come into your home? and said, why don't you get yourself a good shower? I'll make you some dinner. Let me find out more about you and how I can help you so that you can get out of the situation that you're in. See, in the story of John the Baptist, he says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. And then he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And that's what you're describing. Yes, You're describing the fruit that goes with repentance. And John um, Wesley speaks about this. He calls this Christian perfection. And perfection for John Wesley was not a legalistic matter. It was a complete love of the heart for others and for God. Yes, and that love is always expressed in action. Always. It is the fruit in keeping with repentance. Because the book of First John says, if we say that we love our brother or sister, and we see that they're hungry, but then we just say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, that we don't actually love them. In this story of John the Baptist, he says to them, do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. What he's saying is, look, you have places of hiddenness. You have hidey caves. You have beliefs or practices that allow you to avoid the work of repentance. You have theological beliefs that you have been taught that are not of Scripture that allow you to continue 
worldly life, casual life. You know, I think of a group of retired men who don't know what they're going to do with their time and their energy except do chores around the house or travel. What an awesome thing it would be for these men to come together and say, let's open a coffee house and pool their resources and open a business where they can hire young people, where they can have a community place to sit together and read the scriptures and pray together. What an awesome gift that would be. Taking concrete actions in the business world based on our ability to make a difference for people. I think that the most complete description of what a righteous person looks like can be found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. I encourage all of you to read this tonight. So we'll just briefly go through it. We don't have enough time to go through all three chapters, but I'll just point out a few things. So beginning in Matthew chapter 5, and remember, we're focusing on the actions of righteousness. So we're, we already have established that we're not sinning after we repent. But what are we doing instead of sinning? The first thing I found was Jesus said, if your brother is offended with you, that you should actually leave your gift at the altar and go and make peace with him right away. Now, this is so important because you have probably offended people and have not taken the time to follow up with them and make peace with them. And until you do that, all of your offerings to God aren't acceptable. Jesus said that we shouldn't swear, that we should only say yes or no. And this is why we have in the United States the right to affirm instead of swearing. He said to resist not evil, but to turn the other cheek. This is another way of saying that we don't take vengeance into our own hands. So if somebody wrongs us, we don't go after them and try to get, you know, our fair share back. But we leave it in God's hands. We're not to fight for our possessions with the law. So Jesus gives the example that if someone sues you and steals your clothing, he says, let them even have your cloak too. Don't try to fight with people over material things at the law. He said, we said to go the extra mile, to give to those who ask of us, whether it's outright giving or whether it's lending. He says, don't turn anyone away. If you act, if someone comes to you and you have the ability to help them, then help them. And then he goes into an an account of several examples. He says, sinners and tax collectors love those who love them. Sinners and tax collectors will greet those who greet them. But if you're just doing that, then what are you doing more than they're doing? He says you need to do more than what the sinners are doing because your heavenly father does more. Your heavenly father sends rain to the just and the unjust. He feeds everybody. So that's why Jesus says to love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. So if someone has done something really mean and spiteful to you, it would be a good idea for you to pray and find out what is something that you could actually do for them to show 
goodness and kindness and love towards them. For example, we were eating at a local taco restaurant and we got ripped off. We got overcharged on our tacos. And instead of fighting about it, my husband Ray went and gave the woman a flower who had overcharged us. And she was so embarrassed she would not look at us. And the men working in that in that restaurant began to clap and laugh. They understood. As you get into the next chapter of the book of Matthew, chapter 6, Jesus talks about giving alms, praying, forgiving those who've sinned against you, fasting, and the key in all of this is that we're not doing it because we want other people to think that we're righteous, but we're doing it to God in secret. So the warning is in the third chapter of Matthew. He says, I'm I'm baptizing you with the water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now this one who's coming after John the Baptist is warning the axe is already at the root of the tree. The axe is already at the root of your life. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. We eat for the Lord and cry out to him to begin to understand whether in fact we have repented in a way that is acceptable to Jesus? And then are we bearing the fruit of that repentance in holiness, in love, in mercy, in kindness? The Christian life is not about legalism. It's about walking righteous, innocent with Jesus. And it's all done by the power of his precious blood that washes and cleanses us and transforms us into new creatures. Where are you today? How do you stand? What is your position with Jesus and with repentance? I'm terrified for many of you, and and I'm trying to say this with great love and compassion because that's what's in my heart. I'm terrified for you because you have followed the worldly ways. You're just doing a little self-improvement. But essentially, in your inner being, you know whether you are holy and sold out to Jesus. Now, John is commanding those who come to him to flee, run, escape, to Jesus. Be made holy. Be made righteous. Repent of your sins. And after Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount, at the very end, he ends by saying, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And everyone who hears the words and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sea. 
And we know from the book of Genesis that the flood that comes against both of these men is a flood of judgment. And so what Jesus is saying is when the judgment comes, if you've heard these words and you've done them, then your house will stand. You will enter into eternal life. But if you've heard these words and you haven't done them, if you haven't repented, if you aren't bearing the fruit of that repentance, then you will fall in the day of judgment and you will face hell. So we want to invite you to come to the prayer chapel. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. We invite you to come to be serious with us about Jesus and about repentance. You may need to do some serious work. Will you do it? We will soon start revival meetings on Monday night, 7.30. Put a circle around that date. We'll be telling you the location very soon. We'd like you to come and bring your family. It's time to get right with Jesus, to be made whole by his blood. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress today. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. My wife, Alexandra, who has been sharing the broadcast with me. Our hearts are very concerned for you. If you'd like to be a part of supporting this broadcast, you're welcome to write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also visit our website, nationalprayerchapel.com, and you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter under National Prayer Chapel. God bless you, my brother, my sister. We're praying for you. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.